Hey, welcome back to the Ruby Dev Summit. I'm so excited. I am here with Samuel Williams. Now, Samuel lives on uh, the upside down part of the world, you know, where it curves curves under. Uh, he, he's he's from New Zealand, and uh, he he's working on some really really interesting projects. Um, maybe I'll let him tell about it a little bit more. But uh, the projects are uh, Async and Falcon. And uh, Falcon in particular is interesting because it's like an uh, HTTP server or something. It's like, oh, you're writing that in Ruby? That's that's wild. Reminds me of Mongrel with, uh, what's his name? Um, Zed? Yeah. Didn't Zed write sure. Mongrel? Anyway, so uh, uh, yeah, excited to talk about it. Uh, and I think we're going to get a different perspective here because I've either been talking to people who build Ruby engines, right? Like Opal or... Um, you know, I'm trying to get Truffle Ruby or somebody on, but you know, people who work on C Ruby, and then um, you know, I had Amir Rajan who works on Dragon Ruby, which is a Ruby engine, but it's built for video games, uh, which it, <laughs> that that was a fun talk. Um, you know, and then I've got people who work out there in the ecosystem building open source, but you know, again, it's mostly web, like web development, so you know, web frameworks or working in Rails, and so yeah, the perspective here is different. I'm going to stop talking and let Samuel talk. Uh, Samuel, welcome. Um, I'm, I'm just going to throw the question at you and you can kind of take it from here, but Fantastic. what is, what is the future of Ruby? Gosh, that is a, a really good question. Um, I think that for me, Ruby is a great environment for expressing yourself as a programmer. Uh -huh. Um, a lot of programming languages, I feel get bogged down in the detail of the language. And I always felt like with Ruby, it didn't take, there wasn't too much pedant, like pedantry in the code. Like it was, it was straightforward to write mm -hmm. the programs that I wanted to create. Um, <clears throat> many years ago, uh, I was working on a property management application written Objective-C and I started hacking on a web version of this. Um, and I started using Rails, and I felt like it was a really great platform, uh, but it was kind of, um, there were some pieces missing for me. Mm -hmm. When I was working on that particular problem, I was interested in scalability and how you build applications that can handle lots of requests. And one area mm -hmm. where I came about this problem was actually a DNS server. And so in my home network, I wanted to make a custom DNS server to um, back in the bad old days with ADSL modems. Mm -hmm. If you wanted to host a website inside your network and still have the domain name resolve, you would have to have a DNS server that would return the local IP address inside your home network for the website oh, wow. locally. And if you were like on the internet, you would have to have a DNS server that would return your ADSL modem's IP address so you could do port forwarding, like port 80 or, or mm -hmm. whatever. Right. And so I was trying to build this website. I was like, well, this is kind of an interesting problem. And so I kind of switched gears a little bit. And um, I wanted to build a DNS server that could do this for me. And I, I thought okay. this, you know, Ruby seems like a reasonable language. It's, it's basically just pattern mm -hmm. matching on the host name and then returning a different right. DNS record. How hard could it be? And so I created a um, probably one of my first gems. It was called Ruby DNS, and it was a um, a DNS server for Ruby. 
And <laughs> the first time I ran this, my whole network like crashed. Um, because it turns <laughs> I love out, it. Yeah, running single-threaded DNS servers isn't, you know, very practical. Um, essentially, uh-huh. every computer in your network is doing DNS queries, like multiple queries right. potentially per All second. And if your DNS server can't handle the incoming load, <laughs> your computers <laughs> will stop working. Like your web uh-huh. browser will stop working, time, you know, NTP yep. will stop. You know, everything just like grinds to a halt. So I started, you know, it was my first real experience of... Um, concurrency and scalability problems because it's just like well this uh-huh. is an easy problem like you know it's a well-defined problem you know a message comes in do some kind of computation you respond to you know it's really straightforward um and i i felt like uh ruby didn't provide the right tools to solve that mm-hmm. problem and that, that to me was a little disappointing because it's like well the code itself is clear you know, I can write down what I want, which is I want to pad and match this host name and return this IP address if the request right. comes from inside the network. Otherwise, like pass the request down, you know, to the to the ISP's um, DNS server. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, so to me, like the, it was a straightforward problem, um, but the the way that Ruby, the, the tools that Ruby provided to solve that problem, um, weren't weren't necessarily um, convenient or or scalable right. or, or uh, it wasn't even maybe obvious, even if Ruby at the time could do that, like how you would go about doing it. So right. in that first instance, um, I started trying to work on the multi-threaded DNS server. And that was difficult because um, it still has scalability issues. And I started learning about like mutexes and, and, and mm-hmm. parallelism and all these like um, sort of challenges associated with using threads. And right. That, that, yeah, those challenges they weren't insurmountable but I, I felt like now my code is much less clear you know, I'm, I'm writing this code I have to deal with these, these uh, mm-hmm. concerns around concurrency that, and parallelism that I didn't really want to I just want to say basically like here's a request block of code that handles the request and here's the response and then we'll like deal with anything else so at this time specifically I started working on an um, interesting test case for this, which was called Wikipedia DNS, which is a DNS server, which um, it basically does an HTTP request to Wikipedia to get the summary for a a topic. And so you can get Wikipedia summaries through DNS. And so uh, what was interesting about this problem was that it had to do an HTTP request. And so as you can imagine, doing an HTTP request is kind of slow. Mm -hmm. And so it was an interesting test case for me because I was like, how do you make a DNS server that's doing this more efficient and, and scale better? And actually this problem is the same problem as you see in web applications and, and, and other types of mm-hmm. response systems. And so at that time, um, uh, Tony, Tony Arcieri, I think that's how you pronounce his last mm-hmm. name. Yep. Um, he was working on celluloid and he was uh, working on actor-based concurrency. So actor-based concurrency mm-hmm. is where you define um, essentially uh, a unit of work and that unit of work happens independently of other units of work. Um, right. And it uses the actor model, which is message passing. So you have these different like systems. So you have like a every connection that comes in could be its own actor. And then when it needs right. to do an HTTP request, it goes and talks to another actor and that actor itself is then responsible for doing the HTTP request. And once that request is finished, it comes back to the original and says, hey, you can keep on going. Um, yeah. 
and in a lot of those systems, those actors are separate processes. They can be, or separate threads. Right. Um, and so at that time, I was like, well, this is seems like a neat idea. Like maybe this is the right approach. And so I started working down, you know, going down that pathway and building that. And so I built celluloid DNS and I worked on the celluloid gem quite a bit. Um, but the biggest disappointment there, I think, was the fact that uh, celluloid was so complex that it kind of collapsed under its own weight. Um, mm-hmm. The semantic complexity uh, was just too great. And I think the actor model when you start trying to build a practical actor model does get extremely complex, like supervisors, um, mm-hmm. linking actors together. Right. One particular piece of code that really bothered me was this concept of linking actors together. And so a linked actor is where one actor crashes, the other will get informed and can like restart. It's kind of forms a supervisor relationship. So uh-huh. if you have like, say a web server and that web server blows up, you have another actor whose sole purpose is to restart that server for example right this is this is how a lot of the erlang and elixir stuff works that's correct yeah yeah and i i'm not really like criticizing erlang and elixir i think they're great systems for the problems they solve but um for me personally in ruby with celluloid the piece of code that bothered me the most was this one piece of code which basically has like a five second timeout where Uh it basically tries to talk to another actor and if it doesn't respond in five seconds it just blows up basically and i was just like why is it five seconds like and and the whole <laughs> the whole like semantic building like building block above it was all based on this kind of like implementation detail that really bothered me and it, the challenge there is there were too many choices to be made and the the semantic complexity just got out of control and so as a consequence celluloid never really reached a 1.0 release there was never a point where right. we could say hey this is what celluloid is and it will right and this is the foundation of what you can build other things so i i basically built like a version of ruby dns that worked on celluloid like all the way to the end point i just like this is i, I just can't uh-huh. i don't want to release this um and so at that point uh i made the decision to release uh, to work on like to, to to do this myself i kind of got sick of depending on other people's ideas and i was like and i kind of know what i want to do this right and that was the birth of async the gem that i created for doing uh ruby's uh concurrency concurrency within ruby i suppose Mm -hmm. and um so async was was born out of frustration i suppose you could call it frustration development (laughs) frustration driven (laughs) development um you know there are a lot of very great things that came out of frustration driven (laughs) development absolutely um and I knew that for me, like one of the key goals was having a specific, like a well-specified interface and having that well-specified interface as quickly as possible and, mm-hmm. and, and not, not trying to, um, and not let the scope of the problem and semantics creep beyond what was manageable. Because ultimately when you start doing that, it's, the, it's actually the engineers who pay the price of complexity right. as a, as a person who is trying to solve and build a foundation for other engineers, every decision you make is, um, I, at least I personally think, if this is not complexity I can solve and hide from the user, am I am I comfortable with exposing that complexity to mm-hmm. their 
interface that the engineers ultimately have to build the applications on. Because when you start doing that, then instead of you paying the price, you're basically just passing it on and saying, hey, I can't solve this problem here, you deal with it. And then what you basically do is instead of you solving that complexity in one place, you're basically forcing every engineer who interacts with your interface to solve that complexity in their own Mm -hmm. bespoke, buggy, incomplete way. So uh, async, it was really important to me to say, hey, look, this is the interface I'm going to have. you know, and for me, that was a task-based interface where tasks run concurrently, a well-defined way of starting them, a well-defined life cycle, and essentially being able to say, hey, this is, this is the whole interface. The implementation mm-hmm. will probably get better, but this is the interface. This is the fundamental foundation right. on which um, I think concurrency should work. And so that was established. Like, I built that and released it, I think, in like three months. Um, like a one, I can't actually remember the exact details, but I think mm-hmm. we got to a 1.0 release of async pretty quick. Um, and and that was that's a you know that was you know the rest is history, <laughs> I suppose. Right. So, so uh, yeah. So the question was, what is the future of Ruby? Do you think concurrency is the future of Ruby? Then this kind of concurrency. So, look, I, I suppose my 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 mental model has always been um, Ruby is is a language and a set of tooling and frameworks that is well utilized across the web mm-hmm. ecosystem. Like lots, there's lots of big companies using Ruby. Right. Um, and uh, one of the things I've talked about uh, often in my, in my um, presentations and conference talks is I, I, I try and give like a few minutes on, on climate change and talk about mm-hmm. the, the nature of IT and technology and how we're, I don't claim to be an expert, on this topic, but like being a parent, <laughs> it's kind of concerning, like what's happening right now. And I think technology, um, I think that I have to say, I'm probably like a technologist in terms of like what solutions we're looking towards. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's just because that's who I am. Right. Um, and I see Ruby as being a technology which is widely adopted, but that the, the models and technologies that we use within Ruby to achieve scalability are less efficient than they, than they could be. Okay. And so I think that um, my goal has always been to provide more efficient primitives to build web applications with Ruby. And in particular, okay. to, retro, to retrofit existing applications with minimal changes to okay. take advantage of that increase concurrency and scalability. So I'll give you like a really practical example of this. We had um, one of my friends had an application that was running on like, I don't know, up to eight instances of Puma. And it still had like latency mm-hmm. issues when there was a spike in load. And right. it wasn't, it was mostly IO that they were doing. Um, <clears throat> and they migrated to Falcon and they got it down to like one instance and I think one more instance for Burst or something like that. Oh, wow. So like, this is the kind of like success story in a way, I suppose, because mm-hmm. for me, um, you know, someone could take an existing application with minimal changes, run it on Falcon, and then reduce their carbon footprint of the application, I suppose you could call it. Mm-hmm. And so, like, the, fu- the future of Ruby in my mind, like, for me personally, um, you know, apart from all the great work that people are doing, because there's a lot of it, is more about how do we take all that, um, that's what I'm looking for, uh, velocity, you know, Mm-hmm. all of this lines of source code and make them more efficient and, and work more right. efficiently. And so I think for me, the future of Ruby is all about efficiency and mm. doing more with less. 
And that's yeah. pretty much what underpins the async model. You know, we can do more I.O. with less CPU cores, <laughs> basically. Yeah. Well, it's it's funny too because um, you know, you're talking about this in terms of like climate change and you know how well we're using the resources we have. But the reality is is that it's actually if you can run it on less cores, maybe with less memory, it's cheaper anyway, right? It's a win-win. Yeah, it saves money. Yeah, absolutely. Like the instance I gave before, the example I gave before, it was saving money. So yeah, um, I think that there is. Look, everyone has their own use cases and right. their own and their applications. Sometimes they're CPU heavy, sometimes they're IO heavy. It, just, it really depends, but. I wouldn't want to say my ex experience with web applications across large companies is extensive. I, you know, I've, right. I've, I've worked with a handful of them, and I get to mm -hmm. see people the internals of people's applications and, and look at tracing and, and, and APMs and whatnot and, and have a look at the data. Um, there's only so much you can achieve in one lifetime, I suppose. Right. Um, but from my experience, like a lot of applications are I.O. bound. They, mm -hmm. they are, um, you know, anytime you have a, a web request, you know, net HTTP or, or something like that, you are, you are potentially significantly I.O. bound. And I suppose there's lots of strategies to deal with that. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> sometimes people use background jobs. Um, right. Sometimes they'll use background threads. There's all sorts of strategies you can use to deal with um, improving the efficiency and performance of this type of code. But, mm -hmm. but I think like a lot of it, a lot of the time you have the trade-off of um, code complexity versus right. efficiency. And um, there was a talk that really inspired me. Um, and actually, uh, I don't, the talk really inspired me. I think the conclusion of the talk, like many years later, was ultimately not as good as I hoped it would be. Um, but there's a talk, uh, C++ coroutines and negative overhead abstraction, which really inspired me when I was looking at coroutines and fibers. Mm -hmm. um, this talk basically starts right from the beginning and looks at um, how traditional punch card computers work and how you have like a stack of punch mm -hmm. cards and you basically step by step yep. to, to build like a compiler, you take your punch cards and they go from one machine to the next and they go to the next mm -hmm. machine and you're taking these whole stacks of cards. Um, yep. And they were basically saying, well, how do we like that? If every step takes 10 seconds, then the total processing time is going to be like 10 seconds times the number of steps. Right. So how do we make this faster? And their, their solution was to, when one punch card is finished from one machine, you put it to the next machine, basically. So mm -hmm. instead of every step taking 10 seconds, you can kind of combine them all together because the punch card is following right. through the system end to end. Mm -hmm. um, and, but traditional programs don't work like that, like a function call. When you make a function call, you're basically saying, hey, here is a bunch of inputs, and then give me, give me some result. Mm -hmm. And there's there's no easy you know if you if you feed in ten gigabytes of data it's going to churn away on that data and then come back and say here's your ten gigabytes result, right yeah or whatever um and so this is kind of the same problem as the punch cards you know if you have a whole right. bunch of functions you want to chain together then the total latency of the system is all the individual steps added together right and you can't really avoid that so the whole idea of a coroutine is to kind of short circuit that so that when one function is finished with one data point that can just pass that onto the next function. Mm -hmm. And so these, instead of being like running in 
they're very granular level. They're running kind of almost in lockstep on one data point at a time through, right. the, whole, through the whole pipeline. So this talk that I watched about C++ proteins and negative overhead abstraction really inspired me because um, I never thought about negative, negative overhead abstractions. And now what I mean about this is when you look at languages like JavaScript, <laughs> sorry for mm-hmm. like calling this one out, but um, you see things like async await, the keywords. And right. everyone is like, wow, you know, now we can do like async await. And I'm just like, so you have to add these keywords everywhere and like yep. rewrite all the code. And yep. um, I'm like, this is really exciting. Yeah, to do that with this promises is something I want to spend my time doing. You know, like I want to go through my whole yeah. code base and rewrite everything. Um, you know, imagine if, if um, multi-process or multiple threads were like that, kind of cooperative concurrency with explicit keywords for yielding at every point that you thought yielding would make sense. It, it would be a nightmare. And you see this in very practical terms. You see like JavaScript libraries, which have both synchronous and asynchronous interfaces for the same uh-huh. behavior. Yep. Um, and a really common example of where I think this is a huge problem is logging. Now, and probably there's other ways of solving this at the core of JavaScript, but if you have a log function and, and the log function is doing some kind of I.O., are you expected to go through the entire source code and change your log function from like a synchronous log function to an asynchronous one? Just because like maybe the backend changed from standard right. error through like an HTTP to an APM or something? I, I don't know. Like, it just always struck me as odd that people would want to go through and retarget and rebuild interfaces and make make concurrency an explicit part of the interface when actually it's much more convenient when it's implicit. I do get these arguments for both sides there, but for me, I'm lying firmly on the implicit side. Right. So <clears throat> I suppose with JavaScript being so explicit, um, has some advantages, but it also has some big disadvantages. And so with, with coroutines, I felt, um, it's a great model because it lets you hide a lot of the scheduling. And so with async, I was like, okay, I'm going to use fibers to do this. And I'm going to mm-hmm. try and hide the scheduling. Um, and it's a kind of green thread uh, model. So with async 1.0, um, I wanted to show the proof of concept. I wanted to show, I wanted to get the interface correct, but I also wanted to show like this was feasible. And so, Async 1.0 used a lot of wrappers internally to do I/O and make sure the I/O wasn't blocking, and it, it didn't necessarily pick up every single operation. Um, there were a couple of late outstanding ones, like waiting on a process to exit or um, uh, DNS resolution would be like another one that, that Async 1.0 didn't handle mm-hmm. concurrently. So after I felt like Async. Like it, it seemed successful. Like I could build like a web server and I could run applications on it and it basically just worked as I hoped it would. So I went to Matt's at Ruby World Conference, I think in 2019 or sometime mm-hmm. around there. Um, and I said to Matt's, look, we've got a proof, of, like I built this proof of concept, like it works. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it gives you uh, insane scalability. And I think I demonstrated that at RubyConf Taiwan uh, and a talk called The Journey to One Million, where we did one million mm-hmm. simultaneous web sockets in a single Ruby process. Which, oh, wow. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it was a fun demo. Yeah, and, um, Sorry, go ahead. No, I'm just saying that that's amazing. Yeah, Matt, Matt's pressed the button on the keyboard to do the final connection, so it was great. And um, Oh, nice. I think... Uh, 
that that whole experience, I started looking at the performance because you know uh-huh. now we've got the proof of concept. We've kind of proven the interface. Um, what's the next step? So I said to Matt, we need to make it possible to hook into Ruby's internal scheduling operations so that we can redirect those operations to mm-hmm. the um, some kind of scheduler that can then uh, manage the fibers and, and 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 have some kind of event loop. So a scheduler's job in Ruby is to basically take an operation like a web request. Mm-hmm. And um, if that request is going to take some time to completely say 100 milliseconds, maybe you're talking to an external a- API and it's, it's slow. Um, then the scheduler's job is to say, hey, uh, I'm going to pause the code executing right now until the operation can continue. And then when the operation can continue, um, we will resume execution. And so you have all these like little chunks, like in a rack application or a DNS server for that matter, you basically have like a request come in, you're gonna do some like IO operations and you're gonna write the response. Mm -hmm. You have a whole bunch of these like operating all concurrently. So the scheduler's job is to basically say, well, I'm I'm doing this request and I can't go any further right now. So I'll go and do one at some other request. Right. I can't go any further and I'll go and do some other requests. Oh, now the response has come back from that web service. So I can keep on going like Wikipedia DNS, for example, where it was doing an API call to Wikipedia to get the summary. So now I've got the summary. I can and process it and send the response back out. So the scheduler's job is to do all that work. And so what it's we funny did- because you, you talk about this and this sounds like how my friends who switched from uh, Ruby to Node.js explained why Node.js was better. But, <laughs> well, we have it all in Ruby now. So well, yeah, like, we have it all in Ruby. I tried to explain that to people, but anyway. So um, ASIC 1.0 is the proof of concept. I talked to Matt. I said, look, Matt, we need the hooks in Ruby so that we can redirect these operations to a scheduler and, yeah. and, and efficiently schedule that. And so that's what we did. And it took about, uh, took a couple of releases of Ruby to kind of iron out all the kinks. Right. Um, so we have yeah, I think that's now. pretty normal. Yeah, it's normal. In fact, it's um, I wrote a, bo- a blog post about two years ago, like for the release of Ruby three point one or something. Mm-hmm. I never, I never published the blog post because I, as I was writing the blog post, I found a bug. <laughs> it was like, oh no, uh, I have to wait a whole year to like fix this bug before I can like write the blog. <laughs> never came back to it, but um, so. We implement the scheduler hooks. So Ruby now has something called the fiber scheduler. And the fiber uh-huh. scheduler is providing a whole bunch of hooks. Um, a couple of them like IO wait for dealing with like reads and writes that are blocking. Um, right. uh, address resolve, which deals with DNS. So concurrent DNS resolution. Um, process wait, which deals with waiting on a child process to exit. Um, mm-hmm. There are a bunch of specific ones like IO read and IO write. And I'll talk a little bit about them in a moment. Um, and so there's all these hooks. And so the Ruby interpreter, <clears throat> when it's running code that the user wrote, if that code um, executes an operation that would block, it gets redirected to the fiber scheduler and the fiber scheduler will then manage um, the concurrency of, of, of multiple tasks so they can be mm-hmm. executed most efficiently. Um, the, the benchmark I have for that is actually go, like going into this whole problem, even with Ruby DNS, was like, how do we run the most lines of Ruby code as efficiently as possible. And so the, the fiber scheduler is context switching between, right. between fibers and tasks. 
um, mm -hmm. and, and basically trying to execute lines as quickly as possible. I suppose you can look at it that, that way. So async 2.0 was the first release of async that took advantage, full advantage of the fiber scheduler. And um, it was really like a major milestone, I suppose, for Ruby, even if it's not mm -hmm. publicly obvious why. Um, you can take an existing Ruby program, run it on top of async, and gain significant advantages to IO concurrency. And, and like potentially like other forms of concurrency, like DNS resolution, mm -hmm. waiting on child processes and whatnot. Um, and so it's all well and good having this foundation, I suppose, but maybe that leads us into the next topic, like Falcon and mm -hmm. how that works and why that's important. So as we, as we know, like Ruby, um, is a great environment for running web applications for, for lots of reasons. Um, Rails probably being like the biggest one. Yeah. And I felt like my DNS server wasn't, was, was one, like for me, it was my proof of concept, but I, then I was like, well, surely we can write a web server. Like, <laughs> how hard can it be? <laughs> Famous um, last words, right? Yeah, exactly. Totally. So basically I built Falcon as a proof of concept to see like, you know, how good is it? You know, what kind of performance can we get? Mm -hmm. And so Falcon was was born out of that kind of um, curiosity, I suppose. Um, obviously, we wanted to use Rack. Um, Rack is the standard interface for um, between web servers and web right. applications in the Ruby world. Yeah, and if you optimize for Rack, you optimize not just for Rails, but for Sinatra and Rhoda and Absolutely. all the others because it is that core piece, the HTTP interface to Ruby. That's right, yeah. And so, <laughs> it's like a whole can of worms. Like, Oh, I'm so sure. Rack 2.0, when I when I started build, building Falcon, uh, I was like, hmm, I wonder how Rack works. And I, I'd done, <laughs> I built my own framework under for Rack in the past, but it was really just like, as a consumer of the interface, I wasn't really considering like what it's like to be on the other side of right. the equation on the server side. Um, <clears throat> so when I went to the Rack issue tracker, many, like it was many years ago now, mm -hmm. um, there were like hundreds of open issues. No one was really maintaining Rack. And I was like, well, this is a little right. sad. This really critical piece of infrastructure that's kind of, I suppose it's a little hidden from view because most mm -hmm. people wouldn't really need to know why Rack exists or, or why it's important. But um, right. so Rack is essentially a CGI gateway between, right. like, it's basically using the CGI specification as an interface for applications. And so every web server that talks to a Rack application with a request and then gets a response from their application is essentially using the guts of, of, of the CGI specification. Like um, so, uh, path info uh, is one mm -hmm. of the more common like CGI uh, fields and it's, it's defined by the CGI RFC it's used by Rack. Right. <clears throat> so I was really interested, I was really interested in HTTP2 um, at the time. I was like, there weren't many good implementations of HTTP2 for Ruby. And mm -hmm. so I went and created one. Um, there's a gem called async HTTP, which does HTTP1, HTTP2, and hopefully mm -hmm. soon HTTP3. And um, and I thought, well, why can't we support HTTP2 directly from web servers? Like, it's pretty, it's a pretty right. good protocol in lots, in lots of regards. Like it's a bit of a, HTTP1 is, is text-based, line-based. Mm -hmm. 
HTTP2 is, is using binary framing. And so it's, right. it's harder to stuff up HTTP2. Um, so it's a bit more secure and, and it has other advantages right. as well. So it's like, what, you know, why can't I run a rack application in HTTP2? Well, <laughs> as it turns mm -hmm. out, um, the CGI specification uh, that, that rack was sort of implementing, um, well, semantically, you can always write proxies between HTTP1, HTTP2, and HTTP3. They've tried to have the same right. semantics between all the different versions. Right. It's just the, the protocol itself on the wire that, that differs. But, but rack itself didn't really expose um, a good model for that, in my opinion. And so mm -hmm. I started working on that problem. And so one of the biggest, most important changes that I feel like I made to Rack um, was the ability to stream requests and responses. So this means right. that if, uh, there was a, I, I had a conversation with the NGA many years ago and they were like, we're generating CSV, like a lot of CSV uh -huh. from a Rails app and it gets buffered the whole lot and it's like multi-gigabytes and we're killing servers because they can't right. buffer the whole response. How do we start streaming this? And it's interesting that that's even a complicated question to answer, in my opinion, because I, I don't think it should be. And so Falcon uh, and Rack, the changes that I made, I, I was sort of trying to change that to make it easier to stream responses. And another mm -hmm. piece of this is like WebSockets. Um, <clears throat> even today, Rails still uses uh, a hijack mechanism, which is where it basically, the request comes in and Rails basically steals the whole connection and plonks it in its own event loop separate to mm -hmm. the server itself and then starts talking to the WebSocket protocol on that. But the biggest issue with that is like because it's hijacking the whole connection, it doesn't work with HTTP2, which supports multiplexing on a single connection. Because with HTTP1, you have one connection per request response. And it's okay to take that whole connection and, and, and hijack that. With HTTP2, you have lots of individual connections running on one TCP connection. <clears throat> so I worked on Rack and I solved this problem. We released Rack 3.3, 3, 3 point whatever. <laughs> there was quite a lot of churn as we figured out a few uh, compatibility details. And so now it's possible to run WebSockets natively on a Rack-compatible server that includes Perma, Falcon, um, I think even WebRick is supported with, you know, you can just run a WebSocket straight on the request. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. And so I was really pleased about this because it's sort of, uh, coming back to the question, which what, are the, what is the future of Ruby? Actually, I suppose I, as an engineer, I was really disappointed at how badly WebSockets were handled in Ruby. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's like, how, WebSockets were invented how many years ago and how long has it taken us to get to the point where applications can just like native? Right. Um, and then I think that, I don't want to be too critical, but I think that's held Ruby back in some regards. People look at that and go, well, Ruby can't do this. And it's like, right. well, yeah. And how are we going to solve that problem? And um, so I think the future of Ruby in some regards, there is catching up to do on the technology side. Mm -hmm. um, but I hope that things like Falcon and Async provide the right foundation for building those applications and going forward with, with improved concurrency and scalability. Right. Cool. Well, we've spent, it's so funny because I, I usually have to prompt people as I interview them and, uh, you know, <laughs> to, to, to clarify more things and, you know, and then it's like, oh, we went for, you know, however long. And yeah. Um, I mean, I, I feel like I maybe added some color commentary, but for the most part, 
it, it was really fascinating though to have you kind of walk through that whole process because yeah i mean concurrency is one of the things that i hear a lot of people talk about and it's some of it is down to yeah am i making efficient use of the hardware and do i get the performance gains out of right it has four cores so why am i not using four cores um but the the other end of it is is that um and we all want that kind of efficiency but but the other side of it is is yeah you know there are some capabilities that come along with it that that have, oh, absolutely have open, yeah. right <clears throat> it changes uh, actually uh, it's not just about making things more efficient it actually changes right. the kinds of applications you can build right and so just looking at that it's it's very interesting to look at okay you know now that i've got these things working for me yeah i've got i've got these options and so um that that's very very exciting um i'm wondering too because some people have left ruby because of the concurrency or other concerns do you think we'll pull some of those back or do you think they're just going to stay in uh whatever land they went to to find that um gosh that's a good question look i don't presume to know what people do or don't want as engineers mm -hmm. i've always just felt like i want to scratch my own itch right um <clears throat> look i suppose the, driven development yeah the, the biggest elephant in the room there would be something like elixir and yeah um look it's a great technology and crystal yeah. is as well um yep. from my point of view i just look at it as the biggest bang for the buck like mm -hmm. if i went to work on crystal or elixir and solve or improve their concurrency um it's sort of like if at times like the size of the market mm -hmm. or impact and so for me like the size of the impact for ruby is just so much bigger right so it's it's even the same amount of effort because it's multiplied by the size of the market has so much more total impact right um and so for me personally that, that's the equation i work from i'm like um ruby is a low-hanging fruit there's such a great mm -hmm. scope for making existing applications work better and more efficiently um and that's what i personally find exciting and and seeing the early adopters take falcon use falcon you know use async http and, and derive those incredible benefits um and build and 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 potentially like the the nature of the kind of application they can build with web sockets and service center events and all those other kinds of technologies mm -hmm. that are now very easy to use. We've we've lowered the bar on like on accessing that level of interactivity, and right. so it's exciting to see what people do with that. So to answer your question, like I suppose um, it doesn't really matter because people will use the technology they're yeah. most comfortable with, and that's okay. Yeah. The, and, and like I suppose. At least if someone's arguing that Ruby's not capable of doing like concurrency, we now have a counterpoint, which is, hey, actually it can, and it's really good, and it works really well. And the only the only argument I would really say that that works against that is like, um, it's still early days, but like I don't expect something right. like this to be adopted overnight. Like it's already mm -hmm. been six years, and we've got our early adopters, which is amazing. But it takes time for companies to to companies are. Um, uh, extremely slow on adopting new technologies mm -hmm. and so we're going to be i look i i know there's there's major companies using async i can't really talk to that but um mm -hmm. it, you know it's, it's happening and i think that that's the good you know make it as good as we can for the engineers if it solves an engineering problem they'll use, like people will use it and i think that's yep. great yep absolutely well and it's interesting too because as i've done these interviews um 
and it kind of goes back to the point you were making earlier and the point that several others have made is that Ruby, it, it, it's so expressive. It just gives you so much in the way of, how, how do I put it? So people are adopting things like Python. Python seems to be you know, having a renaissance these days because it has uh, powerful math and science libraries that, and it's approachable enough so that people in academia can go and they can do their thing with it, right? And so yeah. that's not, it's, it's not the expressiveness of the language, right? It's not, you know, any of the things that, in my opinion, draw me to Ruby, right? And so as long as it's fast enough, it ha has enough of the right, either libraries or capabilities to solve my problems and things like that, right? I'm, I'm happy to use Ruby. And the thing that draws me in is the way that the language is put together. And then if you expand that into things like Rails or a lot of the other libraries, really, uh, what you find is you find that it, it's those have adopted the same expressible uh, approach as Ruby, right? So when I was learning Rails, I learned Rails, and then I learned Ruby to learn Rails, right? And I learned Ruby through Rails. But, you know, it, it, it was all very intuitive and, you know, kind of, it got out of the way of me having to really deeply know the technology and I could really think about the problem space I was in. And so, um, yeah, to the extent that, hey, it gets better and better and better and better, uh, that, that's the thing that, that excites me, right, is that it's already good enough, but to see some of these advances, that, that's exciting. And, uh, yeah, like you said, we've got some early adopters. We've got people out there, you know, trying out Falcon and Async and things like that. And uh, what I found is that these things, as they tend to make a difference for more and more people, then, then the word spreads. And then what happens is now the state of the art is not Puma. It's, or maybe Puma adopts some of the things from Falcon and it is Puma, but it's a Puma that's way better or it's Falcon or it's something Absolutely. else. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I have a close working relationship with Nate and a couple of other engineers yeah. who work in Puma and we do cross-collaborate all the time on, on functionality. Oh, yeah. Well, I hope so. Because if you do something brilliant, right, and I'm using Puma, I, I still want it. <laughs> Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And well, actually, you, can, you can use async inside Puma. It works fine. Yeah. You just work, you yeah. work to it. <clears throat> if you have, um, so this is just is a fun aside, I suppose. Um, Puma is using a thread for each request. Uh -huh. but there's no reason why you can't put like a block, an async block in that thread and then multiplex out multiple work requests. So let's right. say you're we're working on a service that has to talk to like, say, maybe you're doing like a, um, you know, identity checking system mm -hmm. or something. You need to talk to like three different remote systems to validate someone's bank details address and, or something else. And you want to talk, do that as quickly as possible. Even inside Puma, well, I guess you have two options. You can use um, uh, is it called Ethon? There's like a there's something called Hydra. There's a gem which works on top of libcurl, I think. Unless you do like concurrency, multiple requests simultaneously. Or you can just drop in an async block and just use net HTTP and it will work as well, or if not, probably better. Um, and so like you can actually embed async inside Puma and, and derive significant benefit if you know, if you have explicit IO concurrency that, that you want to solve for. So yeah, it's yeah. pretty neat. Like it's, 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 it is very composable in that regard. Cool. I'll have to check that out too. All right. Well, um, are there any other things coming in the Ruby or the Ruby community ecosystem? 
core language um, you're jazzed about? Yeah. <laughs> One of the features I've been working on in Ruby <clears throat> um, tangentially is IO buffer, which is an alternative uh -huh. to using strings for network IO. Okay. Um, it's currently marked as experimental. It's been in like the last two or three releases of Ruby. Um, and it's used by the fiber scheduler to uh, have an efficient zero copy mechanism for um, basically saying, we have a string and we want to read into a part of that string. Like someone's trying to read data from the network mm -hmm. into the string. We don't want to like just read data and then copy it in there. And so IO buffer can be a slice of that string and we can efficiently pass that into the Ruby's fiber scheduler. And then the fiber okay. scheduler is responsible for reading into that piece. Um, the IO buffer though, surprisingly, um, I've had bug reports from like lots of people, <laughs> like mm -hmm. not in a bad way, like people trying to do stuff and finding inconsistencies or, or things right. that be better. And I was surprised because I didn't think people would be using it as much, even as much as experimentation. Mm -hmm. This is uh, one of my goals. Just how things get better, so that's fine. Yeah, exactly right. Um, one of my goals is to try and to have zero copy networking in Ruby. Um, mm. Ruby right now does because of the way strings are designed can be edge cases for networking I/O can be quite complex mm -hmm. to avoid copying data. Copying data isn't exactly the worst thing you can do, but it, CPUs only have a bandwidth of like between 50 and 100 gigabytes per second right. of, of memory bandwidth. And so like the, the less of that you consume just copying data because you right. have to do it, the better. Um, and there's another, I, I said earlier, I'd mentioned something specifically about the IO read and IO write fiber schedule hooks, so maybe it's, it's a good option just to briefly touch that. So in Ruby, um, there are operations like reading and writing from a socket or a file or something uh -huh. and you want that to be concurrent and it turns out that um some of those operations are quite hard to do concurrently like reading from a file concurrently uh there's no good api for that in general unix um if you try and say is the file readable it will always say yeah it's readable um and that's unlike say a network socket which if the data hasn't come into the network card then the socket is not readable but a file is always available to read and so there's no good mechanism for basically um, detecting that case. And so you get APIs like um, what's called AIO, which lets you schedule an operation. You say, I would like you to read the data from this file and then tell me when it's done. Um, but these APIs have always been slightly clunky to use and, and often they don't work as effectively as we'd like. So there's a great new API called IOURing. Mm -hmm. And IOURing actually is an asynchronous system call for Linux. So there's a whole bunch of like system calls that um, by default are synchronous. Like the operating system will take some time to do the operation. And um, there was no easy way to do that operation in a non-blocking fashion. There was no API for it. There's no way to say, right. hey, can you start doing this and then tell me when it's done? There was no easy way to do that at the, at the system call level. Mm -hmm. And so what the IOU ring is, is it's, it's a buffer um, a submission buffer and a completion buffer. And, and what you do is when you want to do like a system call, a specific kind of system call, you basically write all the details of that system call into the submission buffer. And then the operating system will basically just read along that submission buffer, taking out the operations and then doing them. And when the operation is completed, it will put the result of the operation into the completion buffer. And so you have, instead of mm. having synchronous system calls, you now have asynchronous system calls. 
Right. Um, and as time goes on, more and more operations are being added to IOU room. So it's really exciting because it allows us to do things like one of the ones, like a simple example of where there was no asynchronous version, if allocate, which basically allocates a file on disk. And this can take time and it's a blocking operation potentially. Um, so if you want to create like a 30 gigabyte file on disk, use if allocate to allocate the space before you start mm -hmm. writing to it. Otherwise you might get halfway through and you can't write any more data out of memory or something. Now with IOU ring, you can schedule this operation into the U ring and then you can wait for it to complete in the background. Mm -hmm. And so this is really fantastic for the fiber scheduler um, because the fiber scheduler can take more and more operations and in this particular case, IO read and IO write are examples of those operations where right. you can basically, hey, read from this file. And when that mm -hmm. operation is complete, tell me that it's done. Right. Um, so it so outsources derive... it to the operating system instead of trying to manage it itself. Exactly. And so I'm really excited by this functionality. And, and it works in, as of today, like if you use the latest version of async, you get IO ring support on Linux where it's, where it's supported. Um, and again, like it's it's a complex system. There will be issues to work out, um, but we are solving those problems and we're seeing significant advantages in production with these types of interfaces. Um, so I think, yeah, coming, coming to your original question, like what is the future of Ruby? I think there's two pieces. There's the catcher, which whereas like mm -hmm. things like WebSockets should have been better a lot right. earlier on. And I think async solves parts of those problems. And then there's just adoption of like user adoption. But then there's also exciting things like um, how Ruby actually interfaces with the operating system to do things more efficiently mm -hmm. and uh, right. low-level interfaces and hooks and just like design required to do that. And I hopefully like most of that's hidden from the end user. So you just install a new version of Ruby and things work better. And mm -hmm. um, so for me personally, that's, that's what I'm focused on and where I think uh, I want to spend more of my time. Very cool. Well, we're over the 45 minutes that we have scheduled, and uh, I, I, I have a whole bunch here to chew on. Plus, we're also scheduled to do a Ruby Rogues episode coming up soon, so um, you know we can go into more detail there. But this has been really fascinating. Um, thanks for coming and, and talking through this. Um, it's a little bit different angle on the future of Ruby than kind of what I've gotten from other folks, and so hopefully some people dive in and go, oh, well, maybe I can help with that, or oh, I'd really like to understand that more. If they do want to reach out to you on that stuff, how do they find you online? The best way to do it is um, GitHub discussions. So on GitHub, okay. you can go to any of the projects you're interested in, just find the discussions. And if it's not enabled, just ping me on um, ping me. <laughs> the other discussions. Most of the major projects have discussions enabled, and it's a great place because there's a bunch of people who get involved and, and um, have experience using it and can help answer questions. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap sure. up here. Thank Until you so much time, folks. for giving yeah. me the opportunity to talk as well. Oh, thanks for coming. This was, like I said, this has been really, really fascinating. Um, and yeah, until next time, folks, Max out.